So, I have headphones, but I'm using the wrong machine for the headphones. So, please allow me a couple of minutes to swap machines over. We will allow, we will allow. Did you see that adorable picture of Azariah with his mother? Oh, I know. Oh my goodness. And he had that jacket on, like clearly that style was from the beginning. So yeah. cool, I had nothing that cool at that age. <laughs> did you know you were cool even then, Azariah? You totally did, you could see it in the picture. I, um... I wouldn't talk about being cool. I, I knew I was loved and I knew I had fun with my mum. Ten years ago, on the 2nd of February, uh, my mum died. And it was only this week that I made the connection that that's also the Feast of Candlemas. When we say, you know, when Simeon says, now your servant can depart in peace when the baby Jesus is brought to the temple. Is that was that was the first time I recognised um, that those two things coincided, and so I can never forget her anniversary now because it's 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 so linked in to this sense. But thank you for referencing that. It's uh, yeah, she um, uh, still plays a uh, a big part in my life in my thinking, and it doesn't take long many mental steps or emotional soul steps to sense a connection to her memory and a connection to her. Yeah, I was just thinking, um, when you talked about your mother and Candlemas, that I, my mother's family comes from a community where you honor um, death anniversaries and the practice of death as well. Like when someone's died, you literally, the children wash the body, right? So that could be a 70, people in their 70s washing the body of a, someone in their 90s. Um, so you kind of you care for your parents body and the way that your body was cared for by your parent and then you remember those anniversaries and so my mother will always you know on kind of our dates that feel arbitrary to me there's another death anniversary that she recalls and she will she connects the action what happened that day something good or bad with oh that this is the day that this person died Um, and so very concretely there's this sense of ancestors and some from you know over 100 years ago so not our lifetime but this is the death anniversary of this clergy person or this great grandparent or something like that. And then I used to hate it when I was little because it felt like the world, it made the world scary to me that there were these forces I couldn't understand. And I have to say now it, it makes me, I feel very comforted by it um, that, that these people that are long gone, and especially the ones I knew, um, remain with us in some way. Um, and it's very concrete for her. And there are rituals about that there, like they actually observe. Um, which kind of brings us to our topic for the day. This episode is a little bit different to how we usually do it, isn't it, Winnie, in terms of the guest today is actually a theme, is actually a topic. And so we're going to be thinking and and dialoguing on the topic of death. Yeah, there's been a lot of it in our lives personally, and I think in our communities. And and of course, in this time of COVID, death and loss is in front of us in in a really profound and personal way. And then you and I had both noted how many... I mean, I think icons for for both of us, um, specifically black icons, um, have died, had died at the end of the year and um, at the beginning of this year. Yeah. So um, I think it would be good for us to to have a think about some of those together, reflect and see what stories emerge and ways in which there have been inspirations to us and perhaps ways in which they could inspire those who are listening. Yeah, who would like to kick us off, Winnie? Who, um, uh, who's one of those losses that you've you particularly felt? So, I have to, so, so many, right? But um, when Bell Hooks died, I was um, 
reminded that she was one of the first people I read as a 17, 17, 18-year-old that helped me to imagine how I occupied space in the world in scholarship and in, um, in the things you learned in college. Um, so Bell Hooks is a sociologist who comes from Kentucky, born and raised in, in rural Kentucky, a black woman, so a black Appalachian woman, who you know, is brilliant from the beginning, right? Brilliant scholar. So it goes off to Brown and to Stanford, which in the U.S. are, you know, the top tier of universities, and is a brilliant student, does a Ph.D. in sociology, um, and then begins to write. And in her writing, from the beginning, um, centers black Appalachian women and writes in ways that are accessible. The first book I read was really thin, is what I remember about it. And her name, the first letters of her name are not capitalized. And Bell Hooks is actually the name of her grandmother. It's not her name. She just lived out all of her values in her scholarship. And her work was, one of the ways she made it accessible, it was critical theory, right? Like high scholarship. There were no footnotes. The language was accessible. And it, it, made, real, it made a lot of sense to an 18-year-old um, that the experience of someone like me or someone like her couldn't be found in the academy except as in opposition to something else. And she centered it. I just literally feel so fortunate that I read that at such an early age in my own development um, to imagine that that was possible. And to me, she still reads like a preacher. Um, I think she's probably a primary influence for me on thinking about how to write and speak and teach. And someone who was very sincere throughout her whole life about what her own questions were, which is what scholars are supposed to do. But her questions were the the real questions of life about love and relationship, how we honor the heritages, heritages that, we, that we come from. And I, I, if you had asked me at 17, do you know who you are? I'd say, of course, like my parents are from India, my name is Winnie, I grew up in Dallas, you know, I like a hamburger. But I, as I was just starting to, to, you know, started university, started classes, that dissonance that many of us start to feel that we're not, we're not there, or that we are other or outside or solely defined for me as, as immigrant or Indian, but I was from India, like you can't find yourself. You know, I wasn't asking questions about who I was, but, but the academy was telling me I didn't exist in the ways that I understood myself. Bell Hooks, Angela Davis, Alice Walker, all black women and black American women helped me to figure out that I existed and that I could exist um, in these landscapes so that, again, I don't, know, I don't know how to be more grateful. And then it, near the end of her life, she wrote a series of books called Belonging, Salvation, and Communion, um, which I have to say brings it all full circle for me as well. So she goes from a sociologist and critical theorist um, to talking about the categories that we think about all the time. And she wouldn't have called herself a theologian at all, but I think it's profoundly theological work. Is she someone that um, is in the, like, is um, kind of on the radar um, where you are and in your context and in your life? I had... Um... One of her books, which was quite biographical, I want to tell the stories of her childhood. I can't remember the name of it. It's on my shelf somewhere, but it's got a kind of red and black cover. And um, it speaks about her grandmother and things as well, which is um, fabulous. I, I love that sense of the intergenerationality of, of claiming that name. That's fascinating. Recently, I've been reading one of her works, which is something like... Um, teaching uh, transgressively or transgressive teaching or te something along those lines where she really looks at the classroom experience and creating a learning community that isn't about students banking information, isn't about her coming in with all the answers, but this collective sense of discovery. And I just think it's brilliant. Uh, she speaks about having trust in the students 
that actually we can create something that you don't need to control and manage the behavior. There's things where she doesn't negate her power, but she decides to be a learner with the other learners and seeks to stimulate something. And just how that um, pedagogy uh, is just so, so vital and brings everyone and brings excitement. You know, so you can't have a sterile fixed curriculum and have excitement uh, and joy within the, the lectures process and and how to bring the artistic and the delight into serious enterprises. So I think she just really blurs the edges between things. She doesn't compartmentalize. And so that's something I've been thinking about recently and reading some of her work in that. And particularly some of the work around, she speaks about her white colleagues and even those that were beginning to open up the distance in time or ideology, the time it took for them to unlearn their conditioned racisms. And even those that seemed to be on board, you know, it was a, it was a surprise to, to which um, there was a resistance to change, even with people that seemed to be quite, you know, we'd use the word woke maybe today. Um, and so I think, yeah, she's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Yeah, as Raya, as you're talking, we, we've talked about uh, Willie James Jennings um, and how he's, you know, he's transforming how we think about the seminary curriculum and where you find voice and where there's, you know, um, what it means to learn together. And, you know, one of the radical things about Bell Hooks for someone like me, who is, you know, in many ways, I was a good child of immigrants, right? An immigrant, right? That I, I did well in school because if you tell me exactly what's expected, I can reproduce it. So I was doing that. And then I encountered Bell Hooks. Um, and again, I feel like I saved myself a lot of trouble encountering Bell Hooks early. I'm grateful for the faculty that introduced her. Um, and you know, a part of her brilliance um, and her just revolu- the, the revolutionary impact of her writing is that her grandmother, Bell Hooks, um, wasn't literate, so had not been taught to read. So, and um, she writes about her. She writes, she writes about her throughout her career of writing, but um, in the end, is writing about the fact that the woman made beautiful quilts, like stunning things, right? That um, that if you had to study to prepare to do them, she would be, you know, an elite quilter of whatever, you know, in the ways that we value that kind of work and labor and the, the art, artistry and uh, what, you know, what it takes to do that kind of work. And she was a woman who um, said she, had, she kind of managed her household and had everything she needed. She didn't actually relate to white people, which Bell Hooks writes a lot about. Like she didn't have to. She could stay in her house and she chose to make a life for herself that, um, that preserved her own dignity, having sorted that out on her own as someone who actually couldn't negotiate the written word and world. Um, what, which is a fascinating thing for someone, a scholar like Bell Hooks to, to reference back. So not that this woman, that over the generations, the family improves, right? But that the wisdom of the family is in the grandmother, right? The wisdom that she's calling up um, through her education is of her grandmother. So that, that part of what Willie James Jennings writes about as well, that, that we are all taught, white people as well, to erase our histories um, and come and learn the scholarship and then be good thinkers, um, and what what's happening in these in for someone like Bell Hooks or Willie Jennings is um, that your histories are full of wisdom and learning for all of us, and that our intellectual project involves and includes includes those histories. So one of the formative pieces for me about Bell Hooks was um, in a time, and we're still in a time like this, when as um, I don't know what cat, what 
labels you all use, but as folks of color struggle for dignity. And as we talk about what that dignity looks like in public spaces, often that's about titles um, and being treated as equals. Um, you hear the language of equalities all the time. And she was quite radical in this, right? She uses her grandmother's name as her, as her name as a writer, and then she doesn't capitalize um, the first letters. Um, she kind of places herself, I mean, from the beginning is my understanding, kind of decides to stand away from the, the parts of the institution, of the academy, of the world, that, um, that grant honor in very particular ways, um, which is different. I mean, there, there are many different ways to do this, right? So when I was, I remember what the professor that taught us bell hooks um, had done the same to her name and went by her first name, which, you know, now would be a pretty controversial thing for a black woman to do. And we might, we might approach that differently. Have you heard anything about that, about that capitalization? I hadn't. No, I, I, I wasn't sure. It's, it's really helpful to, to, um, to hear that. Um, what that reminds me of with Bell Hooks and her taking her grandmother's name, it gets me thinking about those who were enslaved taking the names of, of their owners and then at the point of liberation beginning to use um, X. So we think of people like Malcolm X who was, that was a, a deliberate mark of scratching out that name and beginning to claim a, a deeper identity. Um, and it reminds me of Willie James Jennings in terms of, he often speaks about being caught up in this, um, in, in the story of whiteness. And, and that isn't the original Christian story, but it's commodified and co-opted the Christian story. And so how do we break out of other people's stories? And I think something of, of claiming our ancestry um, and, and deliberately taking away some of those hurdles or layers of the past, which, uh, which were never meant to be there, which actually uh, are like the grave clothes surrounding us. It gives us a sense of liberation and freedom, a fresh start, as it were. You know, connected to that, the way this book starts actually steps right into that space. Of, because, you know, every, no church says that we're not for love, right? We all, especially the liberal church, says love, we say love all the time. So this is how she starts. Um, love is our hope. Love and death were the great mysteries of my childhood. When I did not feel loved, I wanted to die. Death would take away the trauma of feeling unwanted, out of place, of always being the one who does not fit in. I knew then that love gave life meaning. But it disturbed me that nothing I heard about love fit with the world around me. At church we learned that love was peaceful, kind, forgiving, redemptive, faithful, and yet everybody seemed troubled in their relationships. Even as a child I pondered the gap between what folks said about love and the ways they behaved. That's a good set of questions, isn't it? That's, that's really good to think about. I, um, it makes me think a bit about relationships of power and how those who are involved in oppressive practices demand that those that they've been oppressing forgive them and reconcile and and there can be a sense that if we love our brothers and sisters we should um, forgive and forget which gets me thinking a little bit about Desmond Tutu, um, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, who he said, we forgive, but we remember. We forgive and we remember. 
I think that so often I've found that there's been a, a real push towards reconciliation without going down the um, the corridor of justice and reparation, which puts the relationship on an equal footing. Otherwise, it's so easy. So one of the things growing up in my ministry, in my life, people have often given me feedback. Um, I've been in a bullying situation and the, and they've said, oh, you're so gracious when I've continued to smile and continued to go along with what actually is, is a horrible situation. And so I think I my understanding of forgiveness and love has been a bit skewed. You know, it's interesting. It's one of the stereotypes about Indians from the colonial context, right, is that we're, we're smiling but you don't know what we're thinking. And it's that we're deceptive, right, that we're um, untrustworthy. And those racist characterizations then go across race, like everybody thinks that. And um, I've talked about that in, in within my own community with people about that. It's a horrible stereotype, and it, but it plays to this idea. I mean, I think it, it comes from this idea of what dignity can you have in your powerlessness, right? And I think Tutu stands in that space profoundly. Like, how do we claim our dignity when that when dignity does not align with power? Because you know, dignity is a legal term. It's about your your um, your rights as a citizen, and we're talking about the dignity of of people who have no rights. Um, yeah. And so that reminds me of there's uh, one of the stories I remember um, uh, reading about Desmond Tutu spoke about um, being on this particular walkway and it was a construction site and there was uh, a, a burly white chap in front of him. Only one could get by. And so the guy said, I don't make way for gorillas. And... <laughs> Desmond Tutu's response was he took a step back with a gesture of his arm said, but I do, please, on you go. <laughs> like Bell Hook, right? The brilliance of that mind, right? <laughs> Amazing. You know, I so I, I've met Desmond Tutu a couple of times, but like everyone, right? Like yeah. Desmond Tutu has met the whole planet. Um, so I don't know him at all. Um, but I've worked a little bit with his one of his daughters over the years um, who, when she came out, um, um, and married her partner was um, was is not not allowed to serve as a priest um, in her home place. Like wasn't part of that. You know what? Anyway, it's a it's a tragedy, um, or maybe not. But it is what it is. But um, and in her work, so I've known her in her work to kind of really push the envelope on human rights um, and the the power of uh, the possibility of inclusion in the church in Southern Africa. And what I find fascinating about that is as the daughter of, as the accomplished daughter of Desmond Tutu, um, that, and with his full support, right, out, always outspoken support for LGBT people, that, that that piece didn't get moved. And I, I wonder, um, maybe think about in his own life, his, his prophetic and profound commitment to justice in ways that um, really aren't what your PR consultant would recommend, probably, <laughs> you're, you're wrapping up your legacy, which is the thing I, I have always, I found so compelling about him. Yeah, I mean, tell me about the the occasions that you met him. What was the uh, what was the context? What was going on? What was the encounters? Yeah, I mean, nothing. You know, nothing radical. Like, you know, I didn't. I don't. I don't. I don't know him or his family. I met uh, once was with Mpo with his daughter um, at I think at an event in New York um, when she asked at some point if I had met her father, and so 
took me over and you take a picture and it's, you know, awe-inspiring and he's energetic and amazing. And then once we went to St. George's, we were in Cape Town. I was with some people from a church I used to work in. And we had heard, you know, that on Friday, Fridays at noon, he did the Eucharist if he could, if his health was good. You know, he, did, he had a practice of a daily Eucharist, which I've over the years met so many people that have shown up in the hotel room for that daily Eucharist. And so we went and he was there that day. And it was, and he, you know, Michael Weeder, who's the dean there, helped him through. He was weak. Um, and what I remember is some of the leaders with our, from our group who were, you know, pretty highfalutin New Yorkers, right, in tears um, to be in the presence of Desmond Tutu. And one person literally in tears because we asked him to read the lesson. So just the, the, the power of his presence and of that history. Um, and then for me, just the honor of he, you know, being at Eucharist in a little room, you know, in a chapel with, um, with the Archbishop. I love that. And I love the humility of that story. After he died on Twitter, my feed was flooded with people with their selfies with him. Um, but the one that most disturbed me was um, of uh, a, a white clergy chap who had um, Desmond was kneeling down and he said, um, Desmond asked me to bless him. And the picture was of him standing over Desmond with his hands on his head. And it was just so jarring that you know he was saying Desmond's part of my story that's what the picture seemed to be saying you know he's part of my story look at me and it was it was horrible but yeah that that the humility of Desmond Tutu might not be reflected in in the photo montage of after his passing is ironic right it is and I guess it makes me think a little bit of um with Martin Luther King how he's become this iconic pastor um but no longer the iconic prophet. Um, and, um, and so Black History Month, it's all about we can all get along. And it's the part of the I Have a Dream speech that comes after um, the, the reparations bit. <laughs> I say, I live in Georgia. So this is a place where, you know, everybody has to make a Martin Luther King speech. But to have a, you know, a sitting, sitting officers in our government who have just defeated all of the values that Martin Luther King stood for vocally this year in this session, right? Um, wow. So say more. So say more. Yeah, help me understand. Voting that. rights in our country, um, equity in voting and access to voting for all people, the way that those movements are happening in this country, it is about the disenfranchisement of, of specifically black people, but black and brown people. So to, and that's what he worked on, right? Or economic equity, um, rights for workers, um, edu- access to education, access to health care. Um, frankly, access to an income. He was working on basic income things, right? That to, to defeat that work or to undo it um, in our legislative session and then to quote the man. Um, I don't know. I, for me, I would duck. I think, you know, God smite sometimes. <laughs> and I think that's ha- that has absolutely happened with Desmond Tutu. So, so Azariah, um, Harold Lewis died earlier this year. Is Harold Lewis known in, in your context? Harold Lewis is someone that I came across uh, when I was doing some research for my book Ghost Ship and because I'd come across this strange term called Afro-Anglicanism. It's like, what? Afro-Anglicanism? What's that? It sounded so retro, so cool and so fresh and began to look it up and then found myself on uh, the Episcopalian website and seeing this journey of the parallel journey with civil rights of clergy um, who are beginning to uh, to say we need to recognise how we 
as those of an Afri- having an African diaspora, an African um, descent, how we can come together because racism, although it's expressed in different ways, it's, um, it's something that we're all facing. So how do we join the dots on things? And so he was, you know, he was part of that movement. And so from a distance, the research I did uh, just seemed to be incredible. And then I began, I began to meet people who were very much part of the Church of England's uh, push and battle for uh, greater recognition and racial justice. And Harold News was key to, to their progression. So there's a lady called Glyn Gordon Carter um, who wrote a brilliant book. She was heading up a, a committee within um, the sort of the General Synod and within the sort of the governance of the Church of England. And Harold set up this trip to her to, to go to the States and then to go to other places. Um, he was really keen helping um, black bishops like Wilfred Wood and others to connect the dots with other people to give them a sense of, of common community. Uh, and so <laughs> it's such a shame to me. The Afro-Anglicans were moving around. So they're in South Africa, they're in Barbados, um, I can't remember where they were in, in, in the States, whether it's Chicago, New York, I can't remember. But they were due to come to the UK. And um, just before that happened, Harold Lewis left his office. And whoever was his successor uh, uh, didn't feel it was the same priority that he had. And so it was due to come to the UK. And I think it would have been amazing to have hosted the Afro-Anglicanism um, a thing, you know, and so um, so from that perspective, and I had, I think maybe one Zoom with him or something, um, leading up to the book. So when I heard that he had died, it really was a shock to me because he's someone who, in my mind, I think this is always a thing with death. Also, I can't wait to have another conversation with him. But now I won't have another conversation with him. But I can converse with his books. So I've got a couple of his books, and they've just been brilliant. It, you know, it just helped. To root me, and although it's talking about the Episcopalian story, I could see so many parallels and roots. But I, I imagine that he's someone who has loomed large um, in, in in the work that you've been doing and in those that you interact with. Tell us a bit about your experience of him. Well, I love that you that you met him and that you got to talk to him um, because he is one of the great heroes here in the church for many reasons. Um, so one, when he was what we, what we used to call the Black Desk at eight fifteen, eight fifteen is our was our national church offices. It's kind of our, whatever we're calling that now, the church center. Um, and the black desk was basically the, the person to staff however we approach that work from the national church. And those, that idea of that desk comes from after the civil rights movement, um, or during the civil rights movement, our presiding bishop at the time committed millions of dollars of the Episcopal church towards um, serving the city and basically being on the right side of that movement. And it began the splits in our church. So for anyone who tells you it's gay people or women, it begins with the civil rights movement in our country, the current splits that we see that create breakaways and whatever. In our country, that is about civil rights. And so he um, had that job, and in that job really was visionary in what he did with the job. He did the most with it, um, created the conference that you're talking about. That was when I was a young adult. That was in Toronto once, and um, and it was still going. Um, and it, it brought African people of African descent from all over the communion together. Um, and at times it was in South Africa during the anti-apartheid movement. Like it was a, it was prophetic and profound. Um, but while he was at that desk, he also wrote the text on race and the Episcopal church. 
Um, and he did that. Part of that work was as a PhD at the University of Birmingham, which many, many of us go there to do these degrees because they're purely research degrees and we know the project we want, right? And so that, that comes to us through this connection to the UK and he had so many connections in the UK because of that doctoral program. Um, so he is someone who was known to many of us and in Pittsburgh where he was, um, as the church was breaking um, after Catherine Jefford Shorey was elected our presiding bishop, a woman was the presiding bishop, um, and then Gene Robinson was elected as the first gay bishop, he was the director of Calvary Church, a wonderful, historic, important cathedral um, and he held the line. He would not give that place um, to the breakaways in a diocese where the bishop really wanted to break away. And so that was on, for him, that was on inclusion. That was race, gender, sexual orientation, um, just prophetic and fearless. And that meant legal assaults for decades of his life. You know, like who knows what would have happened if that hadn't been those years. Um, just strong and true and deep solidarity um, and a profound sense of the movements that he had come from. Um, just a beautiful, beautiful man. Isn't that wonderful? So, you know, from this side of the pond, it was the fact that he uh, recognised that um, the Church of England wasn't prepared to uh, uh, prepared to fund uh, Glyn Gordon Carter and a team. So he organised the funds. So there was a delegation from the UK and he organised all of the funds um, so that they could come over and uh, to America and to meet their, their fellow siblings. Because then as now, uh, our church is still, um, uh, still doesn't have that, that will, that bite to, uh, to provide what's necessary for people to flourish and thrive. Yeah, and you know, I know, I know that's a, an ongoing issue where you are and for us. Uh, the, what the Harold Lewis, I mean, they were people that organized getting people to the right bishop or the right diocese, including if that had to be in the Caribbean or outside of the U.S. so that people could be ordained, because that wasn't happening in many of our dioceses. Um, created ways for there to be funding for work. And for someone like me to be invited to Toronto, like people were quite aware that I was an Indian, that what, what, what they said to me was wonderful, is, and you're alone. Like, come, come be with us. Um, just the spirit of remarkable generosity and love under really difficult circumstances, telling a story that we would not know if he had not done the research and done the work for us. That's incredible. Thank you for sharing that. And I guess we're all supposed to do that, do this thing, because I'm feeling it right now. Is this, you look at these, or you kind of note the lives of these icons and wonder if we're, if we're doing them justice, if, we're, you know, if there's another generation emerging in the same way. That's a good question. I, in thinking about our topic today, there is a poem prayer that I would love to share called Holy Ghosts. Keep on keeping on, holy daughter, magical son. Your story unfolds as fibres are unspun. Memory cleansed, nightmares undone. Ancestral ghosts, finally rest in peace. So run now, my child, you are released. Amen. May they rest in peace forever. Thank you, Azraya. That's beautiful. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for this conversation. I've really appreciated it. It's, it's lovely to, um, uh, to 
yeah, to be back as uh, the G Race Go Race podcast and. I really appreciate the opportunity to share with you. Thank you to Rosie and um, St. Luke's in Atlanta, Ascension Church, Hume, Heart Edge, all of those good things and all of those wonderful people. Yeah, okay. Well, until the next time. Um, yeah, goodbye. As are our friends Williams and Winnie Varghese, we're talking to one another for the Grace podcast. Randolph Matthews composed the music and it was produced by me, Rosie Dawson. Grace is a HeartEdge production. You can find it by going to www.heartedge.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Do feedback, leave a review and share Grace with your friends. Mm-hmm.